Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 12, beginning at verse 8, Judges 12, verse 8, and while you're doing that, would you take a moment just to stand and greet someone next to you, and because I know it is kind of flu and cold season, maybe give them a holy nod or a holy fist bump instead of a holy (laughs) shake. (laughs) All right, go ahead and do that real quick, and then we'll look at God's word together. And then once you've done that, you can be seated. <laughs> Have a question as we look at God's word today. Uh, think about yourself for a second. How many of you would say you're a uh, checklist, list-making kind of person? You like to make a list, check it off. Yes, and, and how many of you feel like your day is kind of measured by if you accomplished what's on your checklist or not? And you know what, you know that you're this kind of person, if, if you add to the list, maybe you do something off the list, you like to put it on the list just so you can get the satisfaction of checking it off, right? <laughs> How many of you think that's just kind of sick to be this way, you know, some of you are like, yeah. <laughs> well, there's another kind of list person I want you to think about as well. You know, some people when they're a student or maybe as an employee from your boss, Whenever they give you an assignment or task to do, how many of you wish that your boss or your teacher or professor would just give you a list in what to do, how to do it, and how to accomplish it, (laughs) right? Because you want to get a good grade, you want to do a good job for your boss, you don't want to disappoint them. I mean, it would be nice if they just clearly gave you what to do. Or, Or if you're doing a project around the house, how many of you wished you had a clear list of instructions of how to tackle it? I mean, especially if it's plumbing, yeah. Which, by the way, if it's plumbing, just call a plumber. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah those, that's another kind of list person, a checklist person, that we're going to talk about today. And, and I bring this up by way of introduction because I think that this list or checklist approach, we often carry that into how we relate to God. We relate to God often with a checklist, a to-do list. You know, God, just make it very clear what to do. And we're going to see in our text today that it doesn't always work that way with God. So I'm going to start reading at chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 8, chapter 12, verse 8, and we'll work our way through chapter 13. It says, after him, Ibsen of Bethlehem led Israel. Who is the him, by the way? Last week, we looked at a judge. His name was Jephthah. That's who the him is talking about. And if you remember the story of Jephthah, it's a very sad story. Even though God raises him up to defeat the Ammonites and this foreign nation and the spirit of the Lord comes on him, he makes a pretty crazy vow that he tells the Lord, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, then I am going to sacrifice as a burnt offering whatever comes out of my door to meet me after victory. And lo and behold, as he comes back from winning, who comes out to meet him but his what? His daughter. And she was an only child. And so Jephthah is devastated And sadly and tragically, he follows through with this crazy vow, and he sacrifices his only child, his daughter, as a burnt offering to the Lord. So their victory is tragically overshadowed 
by this foolish vow that Jephthah made and actually kept because he didn't have to keep it. The Lord didn't want that. So it says, after him, after Jephthah, Ibsen of Bethlehem led Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside his clan. And for his sons, he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan. Ibsen led Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried in Bethlehem. Which, by the way, this is quite a contrast. Jephthah only had one daughter. But Ibsen had how many sons and daughters? 30 sons and 30 daughters. Verse 11 says, after him, so after Ibsen, Elon the Zebulonite led Israel 10 years. Then Elon died and was buried in Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. And then verse 13, after him, Abdon, son of Hillel from Pirithon, led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he led Israel for eight years. And then Abdon, son of Hillel, died and was buried at Pirithon in Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Now, we're not going to focus on these three guys that much, on Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. These are what scholars call, quote-unquote, minor judges. There's not a lot of information given about these judges versus like a Gideon earlier on or a Samson that we'll see. But there's a couple things to note before we keep going. First of all, notice... Most of the time in the book of Judges, it'll tell us that Israel had peace for so many years, right? But here, do we see any mention of peace mentioned? No. Its omission is striking. There is no mention of peace with Jephthah's reign, and now there's no mention of peace with Ibsen and Elon and Abdon. So this suggests that even though Israel is moving forward, they have leadership, they don't really have peace because they don't have peace with God. That's the first thing to notice. Secondly, did you notice what happened to each of these judges? What happened at the end of their life? They what? They died. Elon died. Abdon died. Ibsen died. Even Jephthah died. All of these judges and leaders have died, which makes us long for a leader who will never die. And guess what? We have a leader who has died and rose again, never to die again, and his name is Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 7 brings out this contrast. Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament says, Now there have been many of those priests or leaders since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. He is a permanent leader. Verse 25, Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So all of these human leaders that we see in the book of Judges, they pale in comparison to the ultimate leader, Jesus Christ, who will never die again. Amen? Well, let's keep reading chapter 13. Chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this character. Did you notice who, in your Bible, who this character that we're going to be studying, what's his name? Samson. You ever heard of Samson? A lot of people have. Even if you don't know the Bible very well, you may be familiar with Samson. It says in chapter 13, verse 1, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for how many years? Forty years. So sadly, I mean, this has been the repeat cycle we've seen all through Judges. They get victory, they get deliverance, and then they go back to their evil ways. What's striking about the way it mentions it here is that evil or sin 
is defined as doing evil in whose eyes did we see? The eyes of the Lord. I mean, this is a good reminder for all of us that it is the Lord who defines what is right and what is wrong. Even if you and I feel good about something, even if as we're making a decision or should we do this or that, if we think, you know, this is right because I feel that it's right, that is not the ultimate factor in determining right and wrong. Our feelings, our heart doesn't determine what's right and wrong, but who determines what's right and wrong? The Lord does. So the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, it said, and they were sold in the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And then it says in verse 2, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and you will give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a what? What's it say there? A Nazarite. We'll talk about that in a second. Dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So, so what's interesting about this, is Israel actually crying out to the Lord for help right now? Did you notice? Did Israel in their oppression and sin actually cry out to the Lord? And the answer is no. And yet God is so gracious, he says, I'm going to take, I'm going to intervene in your life. I'm going to cause Manoah and his wife, who are childless, to have a son who will be set apart from birth to be your savior and deliverer and judge. He is going to be a Nazarite. Now, if you want to read more about the Nazarites, that vow, you can find it in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. I'd encourage you to read that sometime. Numbers, chapter 6. And usually... Uh, when a person made a Nazarite vow, um, any man, any woman could do this. Uh, you did this because you wanted to have a time in your life set apart for the Lord. Maybe you were seeking the Lord for a decision or direction. Maybe you just wanted to have an intense time of seeking the Lord, kind of like fasting. But you would make this vow because you wanted to set aside a specific time in your life to really seek the Lord. And there were three requirements that you had to do when you made this vow. We see some of these here. Uh, one, you could not drink any alcohol or wine or any fermented drink, it says. Um, you also couldn't cut your hair. You know, you can't be touched by a razor, so you would often grow out your beard as a man. And thirdly, it doesn't mention it here, um, you also could not come in contact with a dead body because that would make you unclean. And so you followed all of these stipulations and requirements because you were set apart for the Lord uh, for a certain period of time. But what's different about here in Judges 13 is that this boy, Samson, uh, he has no say in the matter. You usually made this vow as an adult. You voluntarily made this vow, but God says, I'm not going to allow this kid to choose. He is going to be set apart for the Lord. I am setting him apart from the womb all the way until his death. This guy, Samson, is to be set apart for the Lord in everything he does. And so even you, Samson's mom, you are to abstain from these things as a way of setting apart this boy for the Lord. And then we get to verse 6. It says, then the woman, by the way, it never mentions her name. Then the woman, Samson's mom, went to her, went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. 
I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. So do you hear what he's asking? He is praying to the Lord that if this boy is going to be so special and set apart for the Lord, could you give us an instruction manual, God, on how we actually bring up this boy? I mean, it's a great question because Manoah hasn't seen this angel yet. He's kind of confused. He might even be a little bit miffed that why would the angel or this man of God appear to my wife and not to me as the head of the house? Verse 9, it says, God heard Manoah because God hears our prayers, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband, Manoah, was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said, are you the man who talked to my wife? And what does this visitor say? I am. Who else in scripture says, I am? Who, who says that? God. God identifies himself as I am in Exodus 3 and 4 with the burning bush with Moses. Jesus describes himself as I am. So we are getting a clue that this visitor is probably not just an angel or a man of God. It's actually God. So verse 12, so Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? So this is the second time he asked, how can I bring up this boy in the ways of the Lord? If he's going to be so special, how do we do it? Verse 13, the angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. So that's, that's the third time we've heard these instructions. Is that the answer Manoah is looking for, you think? No, he wants more specifics. So it says in verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. He still didn't understand what was going on. In fact, some people think, some scholars think that, you know, back in that day and age, if you made a meal for someone, even if it was for the gods and their kind of pagan beliefs, um, it was thought that if you did this, then that visitor was obligated to do something for you. So it may be that Manoah is trying to obligate the visitor, what, you know, no matter who he thinks he is, and to try to answer his question. Let me make a meal for you, and then you'll answer my question. But in verse 17... Uh, then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? Verse 18, he replied, why do you ask my name? Because it is beyond understanding. Again, Manoah may be trying to force this visitor, which we know is actually God, the angel of God, into telling him and, and helping him out. But the visitor will not tell him his name because it is beyond understanding. It's too great. It's, it's the name of the Lord. And then for this last part, I think we all need to stand just to make sure you're awake for this last part, okay? In verses 19 and following, let's see what happens with Manoah and his wife. 
It says, Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering, and he sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered and talked some sense into him. If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. And you may be seated. So a really interesting story. You know, we often, when we study Samson's life, we look at his adult years. We don't look at how he came to being and how God provided. You know, notice, see if you're paying attention, who shows more faith and trust in the Lord in this passage? Does Manoah show more faith and trust or does his wife? Let's take a vote. How many say it's Manoah that shows more trust? You almost voted. How many says it's his wife? Yes. It's really interesting that Manoah, I mean, in a male-dominated society, he is not doing a very good job leading his family. He's very distrustful. He's very skeptical. This could be why God does not appear to him and appears to his wife, Samson's mom. In fact, Samson's mom reminds us a lot of another person in the New Testament whom an angel of God appeared to and said, you're going to have a son. And this person, Mary, the mother of Jesus, said, you know what? May it be, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as the Lord has said. I mean, she reminds us a lot of Mary. I mean, she is showing Manoah and us what real faith, what real trust looks like in a very difficult thing. But before we bash Manoah, I think we can relate to Manoah a lot in how we relate to God. So if you look at verse 8 again, Judges 13, 8, it says, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who was to be born. And then he asks it again in verse 12. So Manoah asked him, the angel of the Lord, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? So how many times does Manoah ask the Lord for this? Twice. And this is interesting, though. I mean, you can't blame Manoah for this. I mean, he wants to know, God, how are you going to, you know, how are we to raise this boy in the ways of the Lord? Lord, give us a checklist. Give us a to-do list. Give us an instruction manual. And you know what? His question is actually a really good question. Because how many of you often pray to God for clarity and wisdom? God, just show me what to do in this. God, you've called me to this. It'd be nice if you actually showed me step by step actually what to do at work or with my family and parenting or at this decision. If you could just give me a step-by-step -step instruction manual, Lord, that I could check off, that would be great. But instead of God actually giving that to him, well, how does God answer him? Instead of God giving him a checklist or a to-do list or a list that we would prefer and appreciate, do you know what God gives him? He gives him a revelation of himself. And he says, that's enough. 
I entitled my sermon, What We Need Most from God. And you know, it'd be interesting if we could take a poll today. What do you need most from God today? Some of you might say, well, healing or direction or clarity, wisdom, the next step. But do you know what you and I need most from God more than anything else in all the world, all the time? We need a clear revelation of God, of who he is. We need God himself. More than a checklist, more than a to-do list, we actually just need God. And that's enough. It's more than enough. God wanted Manoah and his wife to realize that, hey, here's a vision of who I am. If you have this in your mind, then you're going to raise the boy the right way. You know, one commentator I was reading on this, he kind of related this to parenting or babysitting. If you ever had a young child or watched a young child that's learning how to crawl and to walk, it can be exciting, but it can also be what? Exhausting. (laughs) Because you have to follow this child around, literally, saving his or her life all the time. Don't touch that. Don't mess with that spider. Don't eat that dirt. Don't put your finger in the electric socket. I mean, if a kid looks at you someday, your kid, and says, you've done nothing for me. That's not true. I saved your life so many times as a (laughs) one-year-old. And so literally, you have to go around telling him, don't do this, don't do that, do this, don't touch that. I mean, you, you see the world totally different when your kid starts walking. But as they get older, it's not so much that you give them a to-do list, is it, as a parent? You hope that they've spent enough time with you, that they have your values instilled within them from your time with the Lord. They have the Lord's values instilled within them so that as they get older and life gets way more complicated... They will have the values and the wisdom from the Lord himself that you've instilled in them that they can make a wise decision. They don't need a checklist from you as they get older. In fact, often decisions are very complicated, right? They need the wisdom of God. They need a revelation of God himself that hopefully you've instilled in them over time. And that's what we need too. I mean, even as you think of the Old Testament Versus the New Testament, we see a little bit of a difference. In the Old Testament, God gave them a lot of rules and regulations. He gave them the law in the Old Testament with the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the clean and unclean laws that if you're going to approach God, you have to do it this way. But as we get to the New Testament, it's not so much like that. Instead of rules and regulations, God says, I've given you myself. I've given you my son. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've given you the word of God, and that's more than enough. So the thing that you and I need most from God is not a checklist from God, even though we'd like that some days, I understand. We just need God. And so in my remaining time today, let's look at three ways that we see God very quickly. The first way that we see a revelation of God in this text is that he is the kind of God who graciously saves those who do not deserve it. Read that with me out loud, okay? He is the kind of God who graciously saves those who do not deserve it. And we see this here because the Israelites are not crying out to the Lord for help, yet God's going to intervene and save them anyway. We see this with Manoah. Manoah does not deserve to be the father of this child because he's pretty clueless, and yet God's going to choose him and his family anyways. Most of us know that if you're a believer, it's because it took the direct intervention of God to save you. Amen? You may have been going down one path, but God said, you know what? I want you. You're going to be on my team, and I'm going to intervene and reveal myself to you, and you're going to come to faith in me. Some of us weren't even seeking the Lord, but the Lord just intervened in such a miraculous, marvelous, supernatural way. Or maybe we had hit rock bottom that it was clearly that God 
called us out of his grace to those like us who didn't deserve it. And if you and I actually understand that this is who God is, just think of how this changes us. How many of you have ever struggled to forgive someone in your life? Well, if you haven't, you will at some point. Chances are there's someone here right now struggling to forgive someone. But if you apply this revelation of God that he's given us, that he graciously saves those who don't deserve it, how will that help you forgive others? I mean, just think if you are feeling anger and ill will towards someone because of something they did to you or failed to do, can you imagine what if God felt that same way towards you that you're feeling towards that person? What if God did to you what you would like to see happen to that person or what you would like to do to them? Where would you be? Yes, I know there's consequences for sin. Yes, I know that ideally they would come, confess, and there'd be reconciliation. But, but God calls us to forgive from the heart no matter what. If we really believe that we have a God who graciously saves us even though we didn't deserve it, then that's going to help soften and melt our hearts so that we too can forgive others as well. So what we need in that moment is not a checklist on how to forgive. We need a revelation of God's grace that he had grace on us, people who didn't deserve his forgiveness. Let's go to the second revelation of himself. The second way we see God in this text is he is the kind of God who powerfully provides in the most helpless and hopeless situations. Let's read that together. It's kind of a mouthful. He is the kind of God who powerfully provides in the most helpless and hopeless situations. And we see that here with Manoah and his wife. Because back in that day and age and culture, it was... It was a mark of shame not to be able to have children. Children were everything to a family because they carried on the family name. They carried on the family business and farming. They were kind of like your retirement plan. If we're going to have a good retirement, we better have a lot of children. (laughs) Seems kind of backwards to us today, doesn't it? (laughs) Children were everything, and they couldn't have any. And yet God intervened. He enabled Manoah's wife to conceive and filled her emptiness and her shame with hope and help. God intervened in a moment that they couldn't do really anything about, and only God could provide. By the way, do we see God opening the wombs of other people in Scripture and intervening? Absolutely. We've talked about this before in some sermons. Abraham and Sarah, God opened her womb to provide Isaac, the child of the promise. Isaac and Rebekah, Unable to conceive, but God opens her womb and they have Jacob and Esau, the twins. Even Rachel, Jacob and Rachel, that'd be his second wife. She was unable to conceive and God opened her womb to conceive and they had children. As you go through the Old Testament, we see the story of Hannah. God opens her womb and provides Samuel, the prophet, whom they needed to lead at this time in the the time of Israel before they had King David. In the New Testament, God opens the womb of Elizabeth in Luke 1. Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. They have no children. And God opens her womb. And do you remember what character is born? John the Baptist, who would prepare and preach for the way of the Lord. And then most of all, God opened, I mean, he kind of ups the ante with Mary. She supernaturally conceives by the Holy Spirit, and they have Jesus, the Son of God. I mean, God loves to provide when there's no hope and when it's helpless. One biblical scholar says it like this, each birth was something the mother was humanly incapable of. God was showing that the outworking of his salvation promises was something that no human being could actually manage. 
that God alone is the one who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they are, as though they were. So the question for you and I this morning, if you and I are facing a helpless and hopeless situation, do you believe that God can actually provide in your situation? Do you believe that God can actually answer your prayer? I mean, let's even take a step back. Have you even prayed a big, big prayer and asked God to intervene and ask God to provide? Whatever the situation is. It doesn't guarantee that he will answer it the way you want. I understand that. But this is where we start. That If God is the kind of God who can supernaturally provide all through Scripture and here with Samson, can he not provide for us? And then the last revelation of God that we see here, I mean, we could probably talk about many. Not only is he a God of grace and power, but number three, he's the kind of God who loves to reveal his glory to us. Let's read this together. He is the kind of God who loves to reveal his glory to us. So it's pretty remarkable. Manoah, pretty clueless, and his wife, they have an encounter not just with the angel of the Lord, but with God. Because as this sacrifice, this burnt offering is made, the flame is shooting up towards heaven. The angel of the Lord ascends in the flame up to heaven. You know, I often think, what would I have done if I would have been there? (laughs) They're terrified. They realize that this is not just a man of God, not even just an angel of God. Manoah actually gets it right. We have seen God, and yet we're still alive. He had enough sense to realize, just like Moses did in the Old Testament, that you cannot see God's face and live. I mean, Moses was only allowed to see God's back, really. And yet God graciously comes near. He graciously provides. He reveals himself, really, in all of his glory, and yet they're still alive. How could they survive? Why would God do this and allow them to live? And the answer is that this burnt offering points to the ultimate burnt offering, the ultimate sacrifice. Because think about what the ultimate sacrifice is. It's not this thing on a rock. The ultimate sacrifice that you and I celebrate week in and week out is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This sacrifice is pointing to the one who hung on a cross. And when we see Jesus up on the cross in scripture or remind ourselves of him through singing and through worship, we should feel a little bit like Manoah. That's what we deserved. We were doomed to die. Because of our sin, we deserved to hang on the cross. It took the death of the Son of God and his blood to actually forgive us. There was no other way. This shows us that we deserve that punishment. We deserve to be cut off. We deserve to be forsaken like Jesus, and yet he did it. So like Manoah, we can say, you know what? We were doomed to die too. But then also like Manoah's wife, we can receive assurance of forgiveness that that Jesus willingly did this for us, that for the joy set before us, before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, that because Jesus took our punishment and our place, we can actually be forgiven. Because she tells her husband, you know what, we're still standing here. (laughs) You know, God would not have accepted our sacrifice, you know, if, if he was really mad at us. He wouldn't be telling all this if he was really mad at us. So we have this incredible assurance that we are actually forgiven because of the death of Jesus Christ. And so what you and I need most in terms of a revelation of God, guess what? We already have it. We have it in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're going to celebrate that this morning in a time of communion. Here at First Missionary Church, we celebrate communion at least monthly 
as a reminder of what Jesus has done. And I am so thankful that God gave us this because it's like God is saying, remember, I have revealed myself to you. Look to this. Be amazed. Confess your sin and remember your forgiveness.